This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. All right. Well, welcome to session eight from our series on Luke Acts. Today, we're going to be talking about Rome versus Jerusalem. So last time we were looking at Yeshua's mission and the reason why Yeshua taught in parables. Uh, We ended by looking at the parable of the sower and possible ways that Yeshua's call to repentance might be received by the Jewish people. Today, I want to address a question that we've we've touched on before, but we're going to look at it in more detail this week and next week. And so that question is this, to what extent is the good news a threat to Rome? So we looked a bit at, uh, especially in the first two chapters of Luke, how there seems to be a strong political aspect to the good news. It's not just, we tend to typically traditionally think of the good news as something that is, uh, you know, spiritual, uh, right? It's it's not about a physical, um, political sort of situation, but it's a spiritual sort of thing. Uh, but as we saw, some of Luke's statements, especially in the first two chapters, are, are strikingly political in nature. So, um, yeah, so to what extent is this good news a threat to Rome? Um, and we could rephrase this question in a couple different ways. Is is it part of Messiah's mission and mandate to defeat Rome and deliver Israel from Roman occupation? Is that part of the job description of the Messiah? Uh, another question. Did Yeshua and the apostles have a negative or a positive attitude toward the Roman Empire? Uh, or another way of asking it is, does Yeshua's teaching and ministry represent indifference to Rome or an assault against Rome? So I'm just going to open it up if you have any thoughts on this. Um, maybe, uh, what, what, would you, what do you think would be a typical, uh, or wh- how do you think mo- most Christians would answer uh, these questions? Assuming they haven't listened to any of this series. <laughs> well, I guess what I would have to say is that, uh, you know, based on my background and, and understanding, you know, of the gospel, that it had absolutely nothing to do with Rome. That would have been uh, the way you saw it. Um, yeah, the way I used to see it. Right, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we we're, we assume that uh Yeshua and the apostles all knew that Christianity was going to continue for another couple thousand years before Yeshua would come back. So, I mean, today, Rome is long gone. It's not something we, we worry about anymore, unless you say, oh, well, now it's the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> That's a little a little different uh, issue than what what they were dealing with in the first century. Yeah, so if it's not on our radar, we assume, well, it wasn't on their radar either. That's, a, I think, a common assumption we make. But yeah, especially looking at this last question here, uh, we, you know, because 
these are kind of the main options, right? Either either Yeshua was indifferent to the Roman Empire, like that, that was just more people, right? Like like there's humans, there's institutions on earth, and yeah, Yeshua kind of butted heads with human institutions, just like he did with the temple authorities and these people. And uh, but you know, it was it wasn't anything specific for or against Rome. It was just kind of indifferent toward it. Um, you know, this is a question that has been increasingly debated by scholars in the last couple decades. Uh, a number of scholars have begun to put forward the uh, the position that the New Testament writers exhibit a strong anti-Roman rhetoric, and that this comes up over and over again in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in Paul's writings, in the book of Revelation especially, um, that there's this, this uh, invective polemic against Rome and against the empire. And, uh, you know, of course, some of this is mixed in with post-colonialist studies and, and different sort of deconstructionist approaches. But, but uh, th this is something that is debated today. You know, suddenly we're realizing, hey, maybe there was more of a anti-Roman jab going on uh, in, in Yeshua's teachings and in the teachings of the apostles. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Yeshua's Sermon on the Plain, which parallels the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And I argued that this sermon represents Yeshua's repentance program to avert the coming judgment against Jerusalem and usher in the kingdom of God. Uh, one thing we noted briefly, however, is that Yeshua's teaching represents a drastically different vision than the vision of the Zealots. Uh, note that both Yeshua and the Zealots wanted to see the kingdom of God and see Israel delivered from Roman oppression, uh, but the Zealots sought to do this through violence, aggression, and terrorism, right? Uh, whereas um, Yeshua warned the people that this approach would only end in disaster. And of course, he was right. The Zealot movement became uh, the catalyst for the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. If you read Josephus's description of the final years in Jerusalem leading up to that uh, the, the final siege of Jerusalem, uh, basically what happened is the, the zealots took over and they wouldn't let anyone leave the city. And they, they basically uh, formed their own impromptu uh, uh, rulership over the Jewish people. And, and they were just as hard on their own people as they were on the Romans at some at sometimes, and so uh, it was actually. I mean that that's what uh, caused the Romans to come in and destroy Jerusalem was this whole zealot program, and so uh, so you can see in a lot of Yeshua's teachings in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, there's this. Uh, you know, he's coming against this this uh, uh, attitude of you know we're going to usher in the kingdom through violence through force, right? Through physical effort. We're going to, uh, um, yeah, be, take the, the military kind of approach. And Yeshua really comes against that, especially when he talks about, you know, not retaliating, uh, turning the other cheek, these sorts of things. This is very counterintuitive for uh, a way to usher in the kingdom as far as a lot of first century Jews were concerned. 
so Yeshua taught the only way to the kingdom is through repentance, right? So I believe there is a strong anti-Roman thrust to Yeshua's message, but it's not of the zealot variety, right? Yeshua is not promoting a military uprising against Rome. Instead, he's preaching something that I believe is far more subversive. Of course, many interpreters will agree with me that Yeshua is opposed to the zealot program, uh, but they would conclude that Yeshua didn't really care about Rome. It didn't bother him that Rome occupied the land of Israel in his days. His goal was a spiritual redemption, not a physical redemption. That's what some interpreters would argue. And I would like to argue that's that's not the case, that there is there is still a physical aspect to the redemption as Luke presents it, and, and, and that this is very, uh, very poignant in the way Luke presents his material. So I'm going to suggest that in Luke and Acts, and throughout the apostolic scriptures or the New Testament, there is a sustained, subversive, anti-Roman stance that looks forward to Rome's eventual downfall and the political liberation of the Jewish people. More than that, I'm going to suggest that the New Testament writers correct connect the Roman Empire specifically with the devil. I believe Luke does this, and other places in Scripture do this as well. Uh, to start off, let's turn to Revelation chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, you can open there. I'll pull it up on the screen as well here. Revelation chapter 13, here we read about the beast that came out of the sea. Uh, we'll read uh, verses 1 to 4. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? All right, so, by the way, note that uh, Revelation is the most, probably the most blatantly anti-Roman book in the Bible. Uh, if you didn't know this already, the early believers used the name Babylon as a, a code name for Rome. We see this in, in the book of Revelation. We see this in 1 Peter 5.13. It uses this name Babylon to refer to Rome. Um, and Revelation predicts the fall of Rome at great length. goes into quite a lot of detail describing the coming fall of Rome. Uh, so this passage here, Revelation 13, is drawing on the vision of the four beasts in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 7. We don't have time to look at this right now, uh, but uh, you might remember that Daniel has this vision where he sees these different beasts coming up out of the sea, and uh, they represent four successive empires, each of which will be granted dominion over the people of Israel and the land of Israel for a time. So we have 
first of all, a lion, which represents Babylon. Then there's a bear that represents Persia. Then a leopard that represents Greece. And finally, a terrifying beast with ten horns that represents Rome. So what do we get in Revelation 13? We get a combination of all of them, right? Uh, the beast has ten horns. Uh, it looks like a leopard. It, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion. So it's combining all these empires, culminating in this final empire that is Rome, right? So if you're in the land of Israel, of course, Rome comes from the sea, the direction of the Mediterranean Sea. And... Uh, often on ships, right? Uh, in Revelation 17, verse 9, it clarifies that the seven heads are seven hills, right? And everyone knows that Rome was built on seven hills. Um, also, you know, notice this thing about uh, the, the one of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Uh, and it, that comes up a couple other times in the book of Revelation. Uh, this is... I don't know if you knew this or not, but there is a common legend going around about Emperor Nero. Uh, Nero died in, I think it was uh, the in the 60s, uh, I believe, something like that. I might have my dates wrong, but, uh, you know, somewhere in the middle of the first century, Nero died. And later in the first century, all these rumors started going around that Nero had never really died and that he would come back and... Uh, basically come back to life uh, or some that he had died and that he would come back or be reincarnated or different things like that. Actually, these legends persisted for several hundred years up into the fifth century. The people were still talking about this. Uh, and um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but in Hebrew, the, the title uh, Nero Caesar uh, adds up to 666 or 616, depending on how you spell it. And if you notice at the end of uh, chapter 13 in Revelation, uh, the in Revelation 13, 18, talks about how the number of the beast is 666, or some manuscripts say 616. Those are both alternative ways of spelling Nero in Hebrew. Uh, so I, I think it's clear that to... Uh, first century readers, uh, followers of Yeshua reading this, they would see all this as references to Rome, references to Nero, and uh, Domitian was regarded by some as like the second Nero. Uh, both Nero and Domitian were fierce persecutors of followers of Yeshua. Uh, so anyway, uh, now I, you know, I think this also has future application as well. And that's something we don't have time to go into in this session. But the, the, the point I'm after here is that Revelation depicts the power behind Rome as Satan himself, right? Uh, it's the, the dragon, which, you know, if you read in the previous chapter and in later chapters, that dragon is that old ancient serpent, Satan, the devil, Right? gave his power and his th throne and great authority to the beast, right? Uh, he had given his authority to the beast. So where does Rome get its power? How was it that Rome became so successful to have this huge empire over, you know, most of the then known world? 
That power came from Satan, according to Revelation. In our Holy Spirit series, we talked about um, how the Bible depicts each nation as having an angelic representative in the heavenlies, right? So in Deuteronomy 32, 8 to 9, especially if you're looking at uh, the Septuagint or the Dead Sea Scrolls, in Daniel 10, 13, and verses 20 to 21, we read about... Uh, these verses have been read to mean that each nation has an angelic prince over it, right? So it talks about the prince of Persia and Daniel, the prince of Greece. Uh, in uh, Deuteronomy, it talks about how, you know, each uh, the the nations uh, were numbered according to the number of the sons of God, uh, but Israel is the Lord's portion. So instead of having an angelic prince, Israel... Israel's representative in the heavenlies is God himself. Uh, or alternatively, Dan Daniel puts it that Michael is the prince of Israel, right? And we read about Michael in Revelation as well. So so all these different nations have these different uh, spiritual entities that represent them in a, in a spiritual sense, right? According to Revelation, that spiritual representative behind the Roman Empire is Satan himself. Now, of course, Satan has dominion over all the nations in general, right? So we um, we read, for example, in John, it's called Satan, the ruler of the world. First uh, Corinthians 4, 4, the god of this world. Or uh, Ephesians 2.2, 2, the ruler of the power of the air. You know, we see these kinds of things going on. So there's this sense in which Satan has this dominion uh, over uh, the nations that are on earth. But there is a sense in which he has particular dominion, or at least this is the way uh, the book of Revelation and other places in the apostolic scriptures portray it, that Satan has particular dominion over the Roman Empire. There's something uh, specific about Rome that he's identified with Satan himself. And I think this comes out in the Gospel of Luke. I want us to look at uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. So uh, we've already looked at this passage. This is in Yeshua's temptation. Um but I just want to, to take another quick look at it here. So in this, in this temptation, the devil offers Yeshua the kingdoms of the world, right? It says, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Yeshua answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Yeshua passes the test. But but take a take another quick look at what this test involved. Um, first of all, notice that in, in, in Matthew it says, The devil showed Yeshua all the kingdoms of the world, and the, the word world in Matthew is cosmos. That's where we get the word cosmos, right? Um, the, like, the the world, the, um, the, the whole globe, the, you know, the created order, the cosmos. In uh, Luke, he uses a different term here. Uh, in, uh, in Greek, it's this word, uh, ukomene, 
pasas tas vasilias tes ukomenes. Now, uh, this term in uh, in elsewhere in Luke and Acts, this term is used to refer to the not the the entire globe, but the Roman Empire. Right? So, ukomene, uh, we see this in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, this is that famous verse where uh, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the, the entire ukomene should be registered. Now, of course, this only applied to the Roman Empire. I mean, you know, in those days, Rome thought quite highly of themselves and basically considered themselves to rule over the whole world. But, but still... Uh, you know, obviously it wasn't the entire globe that was included in this Roman census. It's applied to uh, the Roman Empire specifically. Acts 11.28. Um, uh, this is where Agabus uh, foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. Uh, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So obviously it's not the entire globe being affected, but and there's other places too where we see this. And in uh, other Greek writings, this term ukomene is used to refer specifically to the Roman Empire as opposed to the entire, uh, entire globe. The devil is offering Yeshua the Roman Empire, right? Furthermore... Uh, note that the devil claims he has authority over this empire. So understand what this temptation is. You know, what what is it that the devil's offering Yeshua? I mean, this this is, you know, this would overthrow Roman oppression over Israel, establish David's throne in Jerusalem without having to go through the cross, without the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE, and without all the suffering and exile of the Jewish people for almost 2,000 years, without the Holocaust, without all this suffering, under one condition, that Yeshua worships the devil. And, you know, that that's quite a temptation when you look at it in that light, right? But of course, Yeshua passes the test because... And Yeshua knows that his authority comes from God and that God will give him that authority, right? And that's from his father. That's the route to power. So for the point for our purposes here is that the devil is able to make this offer because he is the power behind the Roman Empire. And from a biblical worldview, that power is specifically poised to oppress God's people. In this light, Yeshua's activity of casting out demons takes on a new dimension. Yeshua's attack on Satan's kingdom is an attack on, against the very foundations of Rome. There is, there is something political about Yeshua's ministry as he's casting out demons. This, there's, a, there's a subtle anti-Roman polemic going on here. This is overthrowing Satan's hold on God's people. I think we're going to see that vividly both this week and next week in some of the stuff we look at. All right, uh, let's turn to where we left off last time, and that is Luke eight twenty two. Uh, we're going to dive in there, 
And I'd like to ask for a volunteer. Uh, we're going to start. Let's just read Luke eight twenty-two to 25. Would someone be willing to read that? I can read that for you, Ben. Can you hear me? Sure. That'd be great. So you said 22 to 25? Yep. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to the, one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Great, thank you. Okay, so uh, here we have this incident of the storm. And there's a couple interesting allusions back to uh, stories from the Tanakh. Uh, so we see, first of all, uh, there's this, you know, the storm comes up and what's Yeshua doing? He's sleeping. What story does that remind us of? Of course, that's what we read in, in the book of Jonah, right? Jonah, you know, gets on this ship to go to Tarshish. He's he's going uh, across to, you know, as far, uh, the farthest reaches of the inhabited world that he knows of. Uh, and, and, well, he, you know, he goes down into the hold of the ship and falls asleep. And there's this storm happening and they come and wake him. And they're like, how can you be sleeping during this, right? You know call on your God to, to save us. And, and so the same sort of thing is being repeated here, right? Only this time Yeshua uh, doesn't need to be thrown out of the boat in order to stop it. All he has to do is, is rebuke the wind and the raging waves and they cease. And so here we see Yeshua exercising dominion over the waters, right? Dominion over these forces of nature. And, and this, brings to mind another story in the Tanakh of someone exercising dominion over the waters. And I'm thinking of the crossing of the Red Sea, right? Moses raises his staff and God parts the, the sea and makes a path for the people to get across safely. Well, that story is going to be significant because it's going to, we're going to see another echo of it uh, near the end of the chapter. All right, uh, so let's let's keep going here. We're going to uh, let's read verses twenty six to thirty nine. So that's that'll be a big chunk. Um, but yeah, would someone be willing to read that verses twenty six to thirty nine? Okay, I can read that. Sure. And they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When he had come out onto the land, a certain man from the city met him, who, possesses, who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house 
but in the tombs. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had been commanding the unclean spirits to come out of the man, for it had seized him for many, for many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus answered him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many de demons had entered him. And they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out from the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And those who tended them saw what had happened, and they ran and reported in the city uh, uh, and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed in, and in his right mind, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to depart from them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And he departed, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Great, thank you. All right. So this is... This is quite a story. I, I always found this story uh, eerie and fascinating at the same time. <laughs> so Yeshua and his disciples, they, they come to the other side of the lake, right? They're, they're on the opposite side of the lake from Galilee. So this is in the region of the Decapolis. This is Gentile territory, right? And the fact that people are raising pigs also says as much. Uh, so here they are in uh, on the the other side. They're they're in Gentile territory, and a man met them. Uh, let's take a quick look at the the parallels here. Um, notice that in in Matthew it actually says two demon possessed men uh, met him, and. Uh, Matthew's version is actually a bit shorter. Um, it, it's interesting that the, the Gospel of Matthew is a lot longer than the Gospel of Mark, but when you come to a lot of the actual stories of healings and, and things that took place, Matthew's account is shorter. It's more condensed, uh, whereas Mark spends more time. So the difference is that Matthew contains a lot of Yeshua's uh, teachings and parables and, and things like that that Mark doesn't have. Uh, Mark is the the shortest of the four gospels, but but yeah, so so Mark has two demon possessed men, whereas sorry Matthew has two demon possessed men, whereas Mark and Luke only have one, and uh, you might wonder 
how, how did that happen? How come Matthew has two? Well, I mean, with all those demons, maybe it was hard to tell how many people it was. Uh, I don't know. You, know, you can imagine uh, the disciples arguing about that. Hey, remember that time when, when Yeshua cured that, that guy in, in the Gerasenes and, and the other disciples? Like, no, it was two guys. I'm sure of it. No, I'm pretty sure it was one. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I could imagine something like that happening. So I don't think it's something we should be worried about. Another possibility is that maybe this sort of thing happened more than once and and Matthew just chooses to um, tell it more concisely by putting them both together. Who knows, right? I think there's a lot of possibilities. But uh, yeah, so this man comes comes running to Yeshua. Uh, Yeshua didn't have to go and try and find him. It's the moment Yeshua's foot steps on the land, this guy is is running to him and and uh, throwing himself down at Yeshua's feet. Note the concentration of uncleanness, impurity that we see in this story. So so they're in Gentile territory. They're in, in unclean territory. They encounter an unclean man who lives in the tombs, an unclean place, and he's filled with unclean spirits. And these spirits end up being sent into unclean animals, these unclean pigs, right? So there's just all this impurity being concentrated in this one, one event. And, and this guy is described as, as this strong man that no one can subdue. Uh, this is uh, going to be interesting. Next week, we're going to see Yeshua as he tells this, the parable of the strong man that actually has some connections to this. But um, yeah, so this guy, it says that, um, as Mark tells it, he lived among the tombs. No one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound in shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and sh broke the shackles in, peaches, in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Right? Luke says, uh, many a time, he was bound with chains, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert or wilderness, right? A desolate, desolate area. It doesn't necessarily mean, that the term there doesn't necessarily mean uh, desert the way we think of it, but a place away from where people live. That's what that means. So, so this guy, they try to bind him with chains, but they're not able. He's un, uncontrollable. He's unable to be bound. Uh, there's a couple interesting um, connections with that, not being bound with chains. Um, note that some of the fallen angels, according to 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude uh, verse 6, some of the fallen angels were kept imprisoned with chains to await the final judgment. There's something to do with chains and, chains and uh, demons, uh, demonic stuff going on right um revelation 20 verses 1 to 3 uh, satan's destiny is to be bound with a chain right that's significant and and we see this sort of thing in other places in early jewish literature like in the book of enoch which was uh from just a couple hundred years before this uh so this was this was a common uh, theme an expectation that uh, for the kingdom 
Satan will be bound with a chain. And this relates to Rome, right? So, so there's this expectation that Satan's going to be subdued, that he's going to be bound. Uh, there's also this expectation that these, these demonic entities are going to be bound in chains. And um, there's expectation that Rome is going to fall. So we saw this connection between Satan and Rome already. And um, I think it's significant that the, the man who's possessed by demons in this case, that he's not able to be bound with a chain. Um, that's something that's supposed to be coming, but has not yet been able to uh, be enforced. So in other words, this demonic force is keen on enjoying its full lease on life. Uh, notice what what they say in, in Matthew. They, they say, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So they, they have this sense that there is an appropriate time when they will be sent to... Uh, sent into the abyss, as it says in, in Luke. You know, they're, they're begging him not to send them into the abyss. They know their time is coming, but they're like, this isn't fair. It's not time yet. So somehow, the, I mean, it's strange, isn't it? That, that they're like, um, they have this, this sense that there's a set time and that time has not arrived and that Yeshua, they're, they're surprised to see Yeshua. What's he doing here so early? This, is, this isn't part of the plan. This wasn't, you know, uh, we, no one told us the news. How, how come he's here uh, ahead of schedule, right? So the demons seem to think there's something, something untimely about Yeshua's arrival. They seem surprised. They they're they're surprised to see Yeshua so early, and and uh, in Mark's version, it's, this is, I think, uh, kind of funny actually. Uh, the way Mark has it here, the um, the the guy comes crying out with a loud voice. He said, "What have you to do with me, Yeshua, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me." Uh, you know, look at. All the other places where Yeshua casts out demons, you know, he rebukes them and, and you know, they, they try to cry out and he's like, be quiet, don't say anything. And, and they, they have to listen to him, you know. That's, and, you know, in this case, it's almost like the demon is trying to cast Yeshua out, right? He's like using these legal, this legal formulation, calling, calling Yeshua by his name and by this title, son of the most high God, and, and then trying to adjure him to, you know, to get, get some legal wiggle room here and, and uh, manipulate the circumstances. It's, it's kind of ironic, in my opinion, the way, the way this is, uh, the, this guy's trying to behave here. So, what's the demon's name? All three Gospels. Well, actually, Matthew, I don't think, uh, talks about, uh, doesn't say the demon's name. But in, in Mark and in Luke, um, Yeshua asked him, what is your name? Right? And he said, Legion, for we are many. That's the way Mark has it. What uh, 
What should this remind us of? If you hear the name Legion, uh, I imagine you're a person living in first century under Roman occupation and you hear the word Legion. Because by, by the way, this is not a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. This is a Latin word. It's a, a loan word from Latin, right? Legion, Legion. You would think of Rome, right? It's like, you know, if someone, if if this had happened today and the demon said, uh, my name is Marines, for we are many, you know, what would you think? You'd think of the American U.S. military, right? So th there's, there's a, you know, if th there's several allusions to Rome going on here, uh, and I think this is, uh, this is very poignant. Uh, first of all, the, there's this this insatiable quest uh, quest for domination and occupation. Demonic occupation has become a metaphor for political occupation. This guy is being occupied by this satanic horde, right? And they don't want to be sent out of the region, right? Look at look at how Matthew has it. They're begging him. Um, uh, it's in Mark here. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Why don't they want to be sent out of that area? Well, um, this is the way uh, one scholar puts it. He says, The demons recognize they are in a place they should not be and desperately wish to remain. Precisely how one would expect... This is precisely how one would expect those under Roman hegemony to describe their invading foes. Right, so this is, uh, this is a portrait of Rome, in a microcosm, right? And then also, uh, the pigs are significant. Uh, in uh, the the wild boar was the standard on some of the uh, Roman legions, uh, particularly the Roman tenth legion, which was stationed in that region in the Decapolis. Uh, Josephus talks about the tenth legion a bit in some of his writings. So all these all these things kind of combining together, right? This this demoniac functions kind of like a sentinel. You know, he's standing in gentile territory in this unclean territory uh on the the hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee, looking out across the Sea of Galilee towards the Jewish side and keeping an eye on what's happening in that Jewish territory. Right, and so uh, it says, and uh, Mark says that he saw Yeshua from afar, and ran and fell down before him. So he sees Yeshua coming, and he's like, "This is not right." And he goes running out. So at the moment Yeshua's foot touches the shore, he's there and and imploring him and trying to use legal language against Yeshua to get him to leave and and stuff like that. Right, saying that you know this is an unfair. You shouldn't be here yet. So when, uh, you know, there's all these allusion, allusions to Rome, but when we get to the demon's name, Legion, um, the, that point becomes explicit. The demon identifies itself with the power of Rome's armies, the Legion, Rome's hosts, right? Now this is, by the way, a Legion, uh, as far as we know, had between 4,000 and 6,000 soldiers in it, a Roman Legion. Uh, that, that's a... That's a lot of demons. Now, 
was he exaggerating? I mean, you know, demons aren't known to be the most uh, truthful types of creatures. So yeah, it's possibly he was exaggerating a bit. But according to Mark, there were uh, about 2,000 pigs, right? Uh, the herd of pigs was numbering about 2,000. So so at the very least, there's several thousand demons crammed into this guy, the, the poor guy, eh? Yeah. Notice also that this is the only time in the Gospels where Yeshua encounters a demon that offers some resistance. Every single other time that Yeshua casts out demons, it's just like, he just says a word and it's gone. Right? No questions asked. They submit to him unconditionally. That's, that's all they can do. This time, it says the guy, Yeshua was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And, and, the, and the demon keeps like trying to adjure him and trying to, trying to uh, um, you know, uh, negotiate here. Let, let's, let's, let's negotiate terms. Let's talk about how this is all going to, uh, going to pan out. Um, and so then Yeshua asks his name. Why, why does Yeshua ask the demon's name? Well, uh, as uh, um, one scholar puts it, the possession of one's name was considered equivalent to having power over that person. Right. So notice how how this is what the demon is trying to do. He's he's adjuring Yeshua. Uh, using his his name and his title, Yeshua, Son of the Most High God, right? And uh, trying to use this legal terminology. By the way, uh, if you remember in Revelation 19, verse 12, it says Yeshua has a name written that no one knows but himself. Ultimately, no one's able to claim authority over Yeshua by knowing his name. He's, he has a name that no one knows but himself. I think I think that might be the significance of that verse. Okay, so so this uh, this resistance being offered here is, in my I, I believe this is there's a political aspect to this. The demons don't want to be cast out of the territory. Rome occupies this territory and wants to maintain it, and uh, through negotiation they're able to uh, issue a acquiesces to let them go into the pigs instead. It's a interesting to me that that Yeshua actually agreed to that and um but but yeah that's what happens but the the plan backfires for the demons because as soon as they enter the pigs the the horde of pigs charges down the hills into the sea of Galilee and drowns right i, I mean imagine 2000 pigs doing that that would be uh, quite a scene <laughs> so what does this allude to or what does this remind us of right we just talked about how yeshua's control over the sea reminds us of moses stretching out his staff and god parting the waters so that israel has a safe path to the other side well what happens the enemy tries to follow and they get drowned in the sea what happens here rome's hosts symbolically represented in these demons, rushes and ends up drowning in, t in the sea. God's enemies being drowned in the sea. So I think there's some allusions here to the fall of Rome. And 
allusions to the fact that Yeshua's ministry has a anti-Roman uh, edge to it. Yeah, Yeshua's attitude towards Rome is not just casual and indifferent, that he's there's actually something strong going on here. But another point is that notice that the man is not destroyed. Yeshua doesn't send the man into the sea to get drowned. And the man gets delivered. He gets cleansed. I mean, this guy is, he's not, we assume he's, he's a Gentile, right? Uh, he's not Jewish, but Yeshua delivers him and cleanses him. And he's, uh, you know, sitting there clothed in his right mind. And he begs to go with Yeshua, but Yeshua sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And so he went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Yeshua had done for him. He becomes a messenger of the good news. And, and I think this speaks to God's ultimate desire for the Roman Empire, in this case, is not to just kill off all the Gentiles so that they no longer oppress Israel, but to subdue them and cleanse them to be able to serve God. And ultimately, this points to what we'll see beginning in the book of Acts. Okay. We spent a, long, a lot of time on that story, but uh, let's, let's keep going through a couple of these other stories. Um, so at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, we see Yeshua sending out the 12 apostles. I want to come back to that story in a little bit. Uh, but first, I want to spend a bit of time looking at uh, Luke 9 verses 18 and following. In Luke 9, 18, it says, Yeshua was praying alone. The disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, some, you know, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Messiah of God. So all, all um, the, the synoptic gospels uh, all record this, this event of, of Peter proclaiming Yeshua to be the Messiah. Right, he's he he's the one that first puts it, uh, verbalizes it. You are the Messiah. You are that one. You are the chosen King who is to come. And then he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, "The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised." This is. Uh, this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Yeshua predicts his death, his suffering and death, right? So, so if, if we were reading Luke for the first time, you know, we've gone through the first two chapters where we get this real political vision for a Messiah who's coming to reign on David's throne in Jerusalem, and uh, he's the king, right? This, this is the king that's, that's finally come, and and. Peter gets it and he's like you're that you're the king you're the messiah and Yeshua is like yes but you need to learn a bit more about what messiah is all about what the what does it mean that Yeshua is the messiah what what is what is this role going to look like and 
this must have been a huge shock to the disciples to hear Yeshua predict his suffering and death. I mean, that's not what what a, you picture a, a conquering king coming to do, right? To, to, to uh, be rejected by the Jewish leaders, to be killed, and, and then, you know, what does this mean to be raised on the third day? And if that was hard to swallow, the next thing Yeshua says is even harder to swallow. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So a bunch of things in this passage. But first of all, like in the Sermon on the Mount slash Sermon on the Plain, Yeshua is setting the example of a path of suffering, saying, this is my path. This is the path of Messiah. This is the direction I'm headed. He's blazing that trail, and he's calling us to follow him in that trail, to embrace suffering, to embrace this, this path, right? Of taking up our cross daily and following him. Dying to ourselves, giving up our life, that our life may ultimately be saved. This last verse uh, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is has often been a, a tricky one to understand. Uh, we see this verse in the other Gospels as well, in, in Matthew and Mark. And in, in all these cases, it's followed immediately or very quickly by the story of the transfiguration, right? And so there, there seems to be some connection. Uh, I think we'll probably come back to this point uh, later in the series. Uh, but from from our vantage point, we're able to look back and say, well, almost 2,000 years have passed and we still, still Yeshua hasn't returned and, and we haven't seen, you know, the, the Messianic kingdom in Jerusalem established. So what does this mean that they won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God? Does that mean it's just a spiritual kingdom he's talking about? Or what exactly is this referring to? Well, um, it's not very clear in this case. And, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll be able to touch on it again later. But, but there's something about what happens in the transfiguration that is related to that. That what the, the disciples who witnessed Yeshua's transfiguration saw was a clear, true glimpse of the kingdom. Um, and of course, uh, here we have, uh, the story where, and this takes place eight days later, where Yeshua goes up the mountain and he has Peter, John, and James with him, and they see him transformed. He becomes white, dazzling white, right? And Moses and Elijah are talking with him and they're talking about his departure, actually, the Greek word here is exodus, exodus. <laughs> How many allusions to the exodus have we had already in, in these, uh, these readings so far? 
So he, they're talking about his exodus, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What's that talking about? Is that talking about his death? Is it talking about his resurrection? Is it talking about his ascension? It's not, it's not quite clear what it's, but it has something to do with him going up to Jerusalem. Uh, keep that in mind. And let's, let's skip down to, uh, let's go to verse 28. Sorry, no, that's where we just were. <laughs> let's skip down to verse 51. This is a significant point in the Gospel of Luke. It says, when the day days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So what does this mean, taken up? Um, in Greek, it's just analemseos. It's just like uh, uh, literally taken up, right? Uh, it could also mean like a going up. Uh, so some assume that this is talking about Yeshua's ascension. When the days drew near for Yeshua to go up to heaven, to be taken up to heaven. Maybe that's one possibility. Another possibility is that this is just talking about Yeshua making pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When the time drew near for Yeshua to make Aliyah, to go up to the temple for Passover, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, if you remember from uh, one of our earlier sessions, we talked about how the Gospel of John and the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, are different in this regard. In in uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, both, both Matthew and Luke follow Mark in giving the overall storyline of Yeshua's ministry as culminating in one final trip to Jerusalem. And this is the only trip to Jerusalem mentioned in Yeshua's ministry. His entire ministry in the Synoptic Gospels takes place in the Galilee. The Gospel of John is different. The Gospel of John records uh, numerous trips to Jerusalem and Judea, uh, and actually most of the events narrated in the Gospel of, of John take place in Judea. Uh, so it focuses on those times where Yeshua made uh, a trip to Jerusalem or Judea. Uh, so so Luke is following following Mark in in depicting one big trip, but Luke makes this even more emphatic. I mean, here we are, we're not even to chapter 10 yet, and already we've, we're getting um, Yeshua begins this big trip. Uh, Luke rearranges some of the stories so that a lot of the stories that in Matthew and Mark take place in different circumstances, for Luke, they take place during this last final trip to Jerusalem. So there's, there's a special emphasis on the journey itself. Right, it's not just the fact that he went to Jerusalem, but that there's this this long journey to Jerusalem that occupies. Well, this will keep us occupied until Yeshua doesn't actually get to Jerusalem for, until chapter 19. So that means this long journey occupies 10 chapters, or over a third of the gospel. And this is this is significant, as we've mentioned in another session. This parallels the structure of the book of Acts, right? Because in the book of Acts, we have Paul making this last final journey to Jerusalem that results in his arrest and imprisonment 
and then eventually from that he goes to Rome. So there's this this interesting Jerusalem-Rome contrast going on throughout this gospel, right? We've seen a bunch of references or allusions to Rome in our readings this week. And it's interesting that Luke ends his story in the book of Acts in the city of Rome. Some scholars come to the conclusion that, oh, well, you know, Luke liked Rome. You know, that's why it ends in Rome. And now the capital of Christianity has moved from Jerusalem to Rome. Convenient for, for the Roman Catholic Church, isn't it? Well, I don't think that's the case. And as we get into the book of Acts, we're going to argue that more in depth. But I think uh, it's very clear in, in Acts, and, it, and we've already seen this in the Gospel of Luke, that Luke has Jerusalem at the center. Jerusalem is the capital. Rome represents the ends of the earth, the heart of Satan's kingdom, the seat of Satan's throne even, right? This is... This is the, the evil power and, and the gospel, the good news, is subversively infiltrating to the very heart of Satan's kingdom. And that's this climax that the book of Acts is building up to. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. There's one, one final thing I want to touch on uh, before we close tonight. And that is in Luke chapter 10. So we kind of skipped over this this event where Yeshua sends out the 12, the 12 apostles. That was um, in Luke chapter 9, beginning of Luke chapter 9. Well, in the beginning of Luke chapter 10, Yeshua sends out 72 others. So Yeshua had a lot of disciples. I mean, you know, if you read Matthew and Mark and even John, you don't, always realize how many people were actually following Yeshua as as like faithful followers, actual disciples. According to, to Luke, there was at least 72, <laughs> right? That's a lot of people. But what does he send them to do? He sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. This is a little different than with the apostles. The apostles he sends out to do this mission, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing diseases, right? And the two go together because one of the signs of the messianic era is uh, sickness being taken away, right? Another sign is, as we saw, the devil being bound up in chains and imprisoned, right? So this casting out of demons, um, healing the sick, these are all little tastes of the coming kingdom, right? Little tastes of the messianic era. And so Yeshua sends the 12 disciples out who have this special status as apostles, meaning like legal representatives, emissaries, shlichim. Um, these are uh, Yeshua's legal agents going out representing him and proclaiming his message. Uh, the 72 here, uh, some manuscripts actually say 70, uh, 70 others, um, some say 72. Uh, either way, uh, these ones are not designated as apostles. They're still disciples, but they're not, they're not uh, the legal representatives of Yeshua. Uh, they don't go on an independent mission in and of itself. It says they go into every town and place where Yeshua himself was about to go. So they're, they're more like heralds, 
right? They're they're uh, proclaiming that the king is coming, right? And um, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you, right? So this is their mission. They're going to prepare the way for Yeshua, kind of like what John the Baptist did, right? But in a smaller sense here, they're going to individual towns preparing the way for Yeshua as Yeshua is on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, the the sending of the 12 took place before Yeshua set out to go to Jerusalem. Here, the sending of the 70 takes place as Yeshua is on his way to Jerusalem. And by the way, do you think there's something significant about sending 12 and then sending 70, right? We, uh, um, or 72. I mean, either way, it's hard not to see here an allusion to Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 70 nations, right? So I think there's something like that going on. This is somehow giving us a hint that there's going to be good news going out to the nations, and we'll see that more when we get to the book of Acts. Um, Last verse I want to bring up in relation to this. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What does this mean that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven? Um, well, first of all, what does it mean to fall like lightning? D- does does lightning really fall? <laughs> it's uh, I-, I guess if, if you could say that it falls, you'd have to say it falls really fast. So if Satan fell from heaven like lightning, it, it happened, bam, like really fast, apparently, right? Um, but what does this mean? Was this, when did Yeshua see this happen? When did this happen? Did, was this a, a vision that Yeshua had? Was this something in like the primeval past of history? When, um, like, is this talking about when Satan rebelled and was, and left heaven or, or what? I mean, how come in the book of Job, we see Satan is still going into the heavenlies? How come even in uh, Paul's writing, he talks about we're, we're battling spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Is Satan still in heaven now or isn't he? Um, I don't have all the answers to this, but we do read in Revelation about a battle taking place in the heavenlies and between Michael and his angels and uh, and Satan and his angels. And, of course, Michael wins and and Satan is cast down to the earth. And then he is enraged and goes and makes war against the saints, against Israel, against those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. So I think there's something, and, and somehow, somehow this is related to the apostles' mission, right? There's a sense in which the, this fall uh, is related to what the apostles are doing in preaching the kingdom and casting out demons and and uh, healing the sick and that sort of thing. So I'm just going to suggest that this is related to the fall of Rome somehow. 
right? Uh, we saw the close connection between Satan and Rome in the book of Revelation already. Uh, but this is, and, and actually we see something similar in the book of Revelation, talking about the fall of Rome. Of course, it uses its code word Babylon. In uh, Revelation 18.21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Interesting image. But in both cases, there's this, this sudden dramatic fall, right? And with shock waves reverberating out, thunder claps coming Um the point for our purposes here is that there's something about Yeshua's mission and what he's doing that is threatening the very foundations of the Roman Empire. And I think rightly, uh, Yeshua's ministry is a direct assault against Rome. And obviously, like I said at the beginning, that has to be nuanced a bit because Yeshua is not promoting a zealot uh, plan. His his program is not a zealot program, right? His program is a program of repentance so that God will uh, bring the kingdom. And we're going to have to stop there. <laughs> uh, any Any thoughts or questions on these things? So why is it Rome, Ben? as opposed to any of the other occupying forces or um sorry what do you mean certainly so, like, like you're, you're saying that this is directly against the spirit of rome but like there's been multiple occupying um like babylon or the greeks or so like why is it is it just because that was the occupying force at that point in time is that yeah yeah because i mean that's this is the the big thing facing the jewish people in the first century is they're under roman occupation right so um all the other the the three empires that had preceded them had all been driven out of the land of israel by this time yeah but so like so I was in and out for a bit, but um, so like where there was the demon possessed man, and you were saying that those, that was like legion in the allusion to Rome. Mm -hmm. is, is that as well? So like, is is it that the the demonic occupation of the time is directly linked to the actual um, political occupation? at any given time as well. So, like, if it was previously, would it have been a, a, a Greek or a Babylonian spirit? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know uh, for sure. Uh, in, in theory, I think that would be the case. Because, uh, like, Daniel, for example, talks a lot about uh, Persia and about Greece because um, those were things more immediately on his horizon. Whereas, if for the for Yeshua and the apostles, it's Rome that's the the big the big thing. Uh, 
at the same time, it seems like there's something specific about Rome in the Bible that is more demonized than the others, if that makes sense. Like uh, in the way Daniel depicts these four beasts, you know, the first three are, are relatively... Um, I mean, they're they're known animals, right? Yeah, they're, lions and bears and leopards are can be kind of fierce, but they're 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 known entities. But this fourth one, uh, and 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 Daniel is really troubled about that fourth one. There's something about that one that's like he he doesn't even know how to describe it. It's not a, an, an animal he's ever seen before, right? It's it's terrifying. It's got all these horns. It's got these iron teeth, and it poses more of a threat than the others somehow uh, and and so there's something it seems like the Bible identifies Rome with Satan uh, or, or vice versa it identifies Satan with Rome more strongly than it does these other kingdoms um, I'm not exactly sure why other than that I think uh, you know it seems like Rome did play a bigger threat to God's people uh, historically. Uh, one kind of uh, related question that uh, we might ask is, well, what does that mean for today? Like looking at the book of Revelation, for example, if it's talking about the fall of Rome, how does that, how, how does that apply for today? Because uh, I've, believe obviously the book of revelation has application for the end times as well um what about other kingdoms that have come since rome what about other empires and and uh what's that going to look like in the end times yeah i don't really know i have a question ben sure um just noticing that um you know at first yeshua sends out the 12 and then later he sends out uh, 72. Uh, the number strikingly is similar to, um, well, Joseph's 11 brothers or 10 brothers going to Egypt, and then later the entire family of 70, as it's recorded in the Torah, or 75, according to what Stephen says later in his history. Right. Any connection that you see there? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I haven't haven't really thought about that, but that it does seem like there is there's some sort of connection there. Yeah, because because even in Deuteronomy, in that uh, verse we're looking at the um, here we are Deuteronomy thirty two verse eight. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God or according to the number of the sons of Israel. So, I mean, there's two different ways you can take that depending on which manuscript uh, stream you follow. But um, if you take that as according to the number of the sons of Israel, well, the number of the sons of Israel that came down to Egypt was 70 and there's 70 nations. So it's like the the peoples were divided according to what God knew would be the number of the sons of Israel going down into Egypt. So I don't know. I mean, it seems like there's a connection there too. Uh, that 
could also play into what we're looking at here in Luke. So yeah, if it's uh, if the the sending of the twelve is similar to Joseph's brothers going to Egypt first, and then the sending of the seventy is like the the rest the the, the entire family coming down to live in Egypt. Um, maybe there's a connection between the fact that the one in Luke takes place before he's going to Jerusalem and the one takes place after. But I, I don't have anything, any insight beyond that. Any other thoughts on that? All right. Well, um, any last-minute comments or before we close here? Okay. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for uh, coming out tonight and. Once again, happy Hanukkah to everyone. Have a wonderful seventh night and tomorrow a wonderful eighth night. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.